Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both in person and online. Online, we have audio versions available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, We have video versions available on our website, faithonhill.com, and on our Facebook page, uh, and you just search Faith on Hill, or you don't even have to have a Facebook. You can actually just go to uh, facebook.com backslash faithonhill. You can also follow us on Instagram, at faithonhill, to keep up to date with things going on. As far as things that are going on, uh, we are always taking donations for the Wichita Family Center food, clothes, anything like that. We want to be part of serving and loving our community, especially those in need. Also, uh, small groups will be starting back up. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how being a Christian is not just an individual thing. It is a connected or relational thing. And going to church isn't just about participating or watching something on Sunday morning, but it's about being connected in a tangible and real way. So we would love to invite you to be part of a small group and uh, be connected. We have a group that meets on Sunday morning at the church. Uh, We have a young adults group that meets on Tuesday nights, and uh, we had hoped to be mostly back in person, but with the surge in cases and everything going on, we will have our Zoom group as well. Also, At the end of our time together, we have a time of worship, and this week we will be doing communion. And so uh, if you have juice and some kind of bread or cracker, uh, if you want to get that prepared, uh, generally on Sunday mornings, you know, we've used grape juice and matzah crackers because uh, that would be more accurate. A flatbread with no yeast, Uh, grape juice uh, is a a way to do the wine without... uh, causing any offense to people uh, who have issues with alcohol, but it's whatever you have available. Um, the, the principle is just having the symbols so that we can connect together and remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, if you want to pause this and go grab the elements of communion, we will take it together at the end of our time together. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Philemon. It's just before Hebrews. And we are going to study the book of Philemon as we continue our journey through the 10 least read books of the Bible. Well, if you have your Bibles open to the book of Philemon, I want to read this morning from the Word of God. Philemon, verse 1, says Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I've heard about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, 
yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced but voluntary. Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing you this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe to me your very self. Do not wish, brother, that or I do wish, brother, excuse me, verse 20, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So does Mark, Astarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. and We will tackle it this morning. Philemon is part of the 10 least read books of the Bible that we are journeying through right now. Why is it in that list? It is the sixth least read book of the Bible. Why is Philemon one of the least read books of the Bible? It's in the New Testament. It's written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. Why is this one on the list? In addition to all of the usual reasons, which I'm not going to go over again, I think part of the reason that it's on this list is that it is a problematic book without an easy application. It's a problematic book without an easy application. Now, why is it problematic? Perhaps just in my reading of the text, you already know why it's problematic, but we'll get into that a little more in a minute. I, I want to talk first about this idea that it doesn't have an easy application. Some parts of the Bible are very easy to apply to our lives. It's not hard. Uh, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you say, okay, I need to find a way to love the people around me, the people who live next to me, uh, the people who live in my community, uh, the people I work and, and interact with. That's easy one. Uh, David and Goliath is one that people easily find the application towards. David goes forward in great faith. 
Um, Saul, the king, tries to put armor on him and it doesn't fit. And David says, this isn't me. I got to go and I have to go and fight the battle the way that God has made me. And then he goes and he faces his giants and there's whole books and Christian movies of questionable quality and all this stuff that go on about uh, facing your giants. And so those are easy applications. Here is a personal letter from Paul the Apostle to a rich man about a runaway slave. I can't relate to that, and I'm guessing neither can you. The application is a little harder. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the work. One of the ways that I have found when I'm having trouble getting application is to literally pause in my head and say, what is going on here? And to read the Bible practically instead of theoretically. And here's what I mean by that. Read the Bible practically instead of theoretically. Sometimes, not everybody, but sometimes some people will read the Bible and they will look for some deeper, bigger, hidden meaning, and that's what's going to apply to my life. But more often than not, I have found that instead of some kind of deeper meaning or some kind of hidden agenda in the Bible, if I look for the most practical or obvious intention or meaning of what's going on, that usually is the answer. Sometimes I literally need to stop in my head and just say, what's going on here? And then I need to like retell the story in my own words. Because what's happening in the letter of Philemon is that there was this guy Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave in the household of Philemon. And he escaped, apparently stole on his way out. Which by the way, personally, I've got no problem with. If you are ever enslaved and you have the chance to escape and steal from your slave owner on the way out the door, go for it. But he was a slave who had escaped. Uh, where had he escaped from? The tradition surrounding the letter to Philemon is that it was in the city of Colossae. And that this letter, Philemon, was like a little postcard or little note that came with the letter to the church in Colossae, which we call the book of Colossians in the New Testament. So Onesimus had escaped from the city of Colossae and had made his way to Rome. Now, if you're thinking, if you're an escaped slave, why would you go to the center, the heart of the Roman Empire? We don't know for sure why or what his motives were. I can give you a few guesses, though. Philemon, or excuse me, Onesimus might not have been a first-generation slave. Slaves in the Roman Empire were usually brought in from conquests of the Roman army. So it's possible that he was a second or third-generation slave. That's possible. So for him, it's not about going back to anywhere. In fact, he might be running from the only home he's ever known. It's another possibility that the reason he went to Rome was that it was a good place to hide. In the Roman world, there were cities that might have thousands of people, but most places that people lived were towns or villages that had a thousand people, a few hundred people, 50 people. Even in a town of a thousand people, if you're a new guy, you're going to be noticed. Smallest place I've ever lived was a town of 7,000 people. You know, you got noticed even there. You know, hey, you're new in town. Um, so, where are you going to hide? Rome was the biggest city. If you can get to Rome, you can hide really easily. 
If you've ever read Pride and Prejudice or you've watched any of the number of movies or miniseries, um, you know, there, there's a part in the story where, where um, <clears throat> uh, the daughter, Lydia, runs off and, with Wickham. I don't think it's a spoiler alert. The book's been out for like a few hundred years. But, you know, they run away and they go to London and, the, and they're looking for them. And the father, Mr. Bennett, says they must still be in London because where else could they be so well concealed? That there were only a handful of places, even a few hundred years ago, where you could hide. London, Paris, the handful of these major cities where, that were large enough to hide yourself from people looking from you. So it's very possible that the reason Onesimus went was to hide. There I can be concealed. There I can reimagine myself. Uh, you know, there's plenty of people that do that, right? They, they live in one place and they escape from the only place they've ever known to start a new life and they reimagine themselves, whether it's moving to L.A. or New York City or even to Portland, you know. Uh, growing up in Seattle, I knew a bunch of people that had moved from other parts of the country to Seattle in a sort of attempt to reimagine themselves. But while he is there, he's in Rome, he's running, he's hiding. Again, have no problem with slaves running away, but I'm just... Let's just talk about this. He is not a Christian. How do we know that? Well, because Paul says that while he was there, Onesipus became Paul's son. And, and we understand that he's not speaking literally. He's speaking metaphorically. Hey, he's my son in the faith. Either directly through Paul's ministry or some other way that we're not told, Onesimus became a Christian and he was discipled, he was trained in the faith by Paul himself. So this is the basic story. Onesimus is an escaped slave who runs away from the household of Philemon in the city of Colossae, goes to Rome, becomes a Christian, is discipled by Paul, and now Paul is writing to Philemon and saying, I want to see him set free. And he wants to see him fully free because Onesimus, as an escaped slave, has a death mark on his head. Running away at that point in the Roman Empire was a death sentence for a slave. And Onesimus would have had to live the rest of his life vulnerable to that hanging over his head. He would always be a mark for somebody taking advantage of him. Uh, the first undocumented immigrant that I ever met that I knew for a fact was an undocumented immigrant was a lady from Germany. And I never heard the backstory of, of how she had gotten to America or why she had overstayed her entry visa or anything like that. But what I knew was that the person she worked for knew she was an undocumented worker and held that over her. So she didn't get paid overtime if she worked overtime. She got paid less then she should have been paid. And all of these things were part of it because he knew who she was and what her status was. So she was vulnerable to that employer's exploitation. If somebody found out that Onesimus was an escaped slave and they said, hey, all right, now you're going to come work for me. And if you don't, then I will tell the authorities. If you don't, I'll arrest, I'll take you into custody and I'll claim the bounty myself. He would be vulnerable. He would always have that hanging over his head. He would never be fully free. Paul wants to see him fully free. And there are a lot of people like that, that they come to faith and they are fully free eternally. We are set free from our sins. We are fully forgiven by God, but there is baggage hanging over us. 
There is all kinds of junk that we bring into our new life in Christ, and God wants to see us fully set free. So that's the basic story. Now, why is it problematic? The Bible itself is actually kind of problematic when it comes to slavery. Is that shocking to say? I'm somebody who, I don't just believe the Bible is the word of God, but I, I don't just believe it, but I teach it. I proclaim it. Everything I say on, on Sunday mornings or on any teaching podcast or in any small group, I try to base it in the Word of God because I believe it is authoritative. I believe it contains all that a person needs for eternal life, for victory in this life through a life of godliness. I believe in the Word of God. And so it might seem shocking that I would say it's problematic in regards to slavery. And it can be. It can be. Why is it that Paul writes to Philemon and says, Philemon, what are you doing even owning slaves? Don't you know that every person who has ever lived is made in the image of God, that they are so valuable that Jesus died for them? How is it that you can put somebody against their will and hold them in captivity when we have been set free from the captivity of sin and death? Why didn't Paul write that? Why is it that, um, that the Bible never condemns slavery? Why is it that God chose Abraham as his chosen nation, and yet Abraham had slaves? It is incredibly troubling. I will say this, the more and more that I study slavery in the Old Testament and how God interacts with it in the Old Testament law, the more and more I say, okay, God took a huge problem that is throughout human history. And he, in his people, the nation of Israel, established a law that said, all right, I'm taking you where you're at, but I'm not leaving you there. And the way that God set up slavery in the nation of Israel was that, all right, I'm going to live with the reality here that all of you have slaves. But here's how you have to treat them. Here's how you have to give them far more respect than anyone else in the rest of the world would uh, hold you to account for. Here's what happens if you don't do these things and you have to set them free in seven years. If anyone, we had this thing uh, in, in America even called indentured servitude. Basically, if you were um, committed a crime or you were just in massive debt, you could put yourself into a sort of slavery called indentured servitude and it was to be there for like a time. Hey, I owe this guy like $20,000. I can never repay that. But if I am his servant, his slave for the next five years, that will clear the debt. So I will work for him without getting paid. Uh, you know, he has to provide my room and board, but I will work for him and that will pay off the debt. And then after five years or 10 years or whatever the period of time was, then you were set free. And so God said, hey, you may, have, you may have obtained a slave and you think, oh, I'll keep them the rest of your life. But no, here's the law I'm setting up as a way to get them out. And, and honestly, okay, I can understand what God's doing there. God's taking a broken system and he's saying, let's figure a way out of this thing. I can get that. The New Testament gets a little trickier because not only does it not command that all Christians should release slaves. Not only does it say that God 
hates slavery. It doesn't say that in the way that I would like it to. But then in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, the same Paul who's writing to Philemon to say, set Onesimus free, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. I heard the story recently of a woman who was born into slavery. She was one of the last children born under slavery. And she remembered as a child, the plantation owner wouldn't allow a black preacher to come and hold church services, which was a common practice in the uh, antebellum South under slavery. Instead, the plantation owner, the slave owner, would only allow a white preacher to come, and he was cheap, so he'd only pay him to come out a couple of times a year, and the preacher preached the same sermon every week. Slaves, obey your master. Every time he came, it was the same sermon. And when that lady was five or six years old, the North won the war, the Emancipation Proclamation, she was set free. And so she grew up, a child born into slavery, she grew up and spent the rest of her life as a free woman. <clears throat> Not as free as I would like. Jim Crow segregation, all that, but she grew up as a free woman. And in her last years, she, she was ill, and a young pastor came and wanted to sit with her and encourage her in her hospital bed, and he wanted to read some scripture to her. And, she, and he started to read from the Bible, and she said, who wrote that? And he said, well, Paul did. And she said, no. And it was because that preacher came and always preached from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And she said, I swore I would never read another thing that that man wrote. And I don't blame her. I totally understand that. And that woman has no judgment from me. At the same time, when we come to something that's problematic... I think you have to zoom out. When you come to something that's problematic, you have to get the big picture. Because that preacher who came was not speaking for God in this area. That preacher came and took one verse and quite honestly kind of took it out of context. That preacher who came would not have preached Philemon. I said it's a problematic book. Do you know one of the reasons I believe that it is uh, less read is that pre-Civil War, Philemon is a problematic book in the Western world. England, Belgium, France, Germany, America, Spain, all, quote-unquote, and I'm being very sarcastic a little bit in this anyway, they are all, quote-unquote, Christian nations. What do you do with a book like Philemon? What do you do with a book like Philemon? That is about setting, a, a, not just a slave, a runaway slave free. Problematic if you believe that slavery is a thing that should be going on. Now you zoom out to our time, and I, I would believe that just about everyone, I hope everyone, who is hearing my voice would say, yes, I think that slavery is bad, and we should get rid of slavery. So then you have a situation where this book that was incredibly prog problematic to slave owners was a, a word that slave owners and those who uh, wanted slavery would not have liked the book of Philemon. But now we've come the other way, and it's problematic for us in 2020 because it doesn't go far enough for our eyes, for our, for our way of looking at things. 
somebody who was preaching slaves obey your masters should have filtered that through Philemon. When Paul was saying there was that whatever situation you're in, if you're a Christian, your, your thing is to do the best you can. The, the real comparable thing would be to go back to Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was unjustly enslaved. And the Old Testament makes it clear that that was a bad thing. And yet, because Joseph feared God, wherever he was, he did his best to live a life that honored God. So even in his enslavement and then later his imprisonment, he did his best to honor God. So what Paul was trying to say was, if you're a slave and you have become a Christian and your master is not a Christian, what are you doing to reach them? And you might say, that is horrible. How could you expect somebody who is enslaved against their will to care a lick what their master says? Let me come back to that. Colossians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul says a hard word to slave owners. Hey, if you have, if you have employees, if you have, if you have people that are your servants, how are you treating them? And, and again, that would have been problematic to uh, slave owners in the American South. I, I spoke this week uh, with some friends of mine who, who are black. And I said, hey, where are you at with this? Like, how do you, you filter this? And, and they, they said, you know, first of all, again, if there, if, and this is a big if, but he said, if there is a biblical form, and I want to say this loosely, so just don't hear what I'm not saying, follow me on this, but, but he said, if there is a biblical form of slavery, American slavery was not it. And he said, we bring our own stuff to books like Philemon. Either we want to just dismiss anybody's concerns because we'd just rather not think about racism, or we bring our, our own baggage the other way and we try to project the American experience onto something that was 2,000 years ago and was not the same. Here's what I know. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember when I said a minute ago that what Paul was saying to slaves, obey your masters, was wherever you are at, do everything you can to bring everyone you can to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think collectively, Americans love to pass judgment. We look at other groups and we say, how can you do that? Uh, you know, some, some people judge people in Hollywood. Some people judge conservative Christians in, in more rural areas. Some people judge people from the past. Some people judge people in other cultures. But can we take the judgment in return? Here's what I mean by that. We have outlawed slavery, generally speaking. I know that that's a complicated statement. I know that there's still slavery in the form of human trafficking socioeconomic slavery, all that. I get that. But we abolished slavery as it existed in America. But we had it for a long time. And the Romans might say, yeah, you guys, you guys abolished slavery. But you know what we got rid of? We got rid of child sacrifice. What do you mean? Every day, 
just down on McLaughlin, unborn children are put to death. The Romans got rid of child sacrifice. I was doing some reading about the history of child sacrifice in, in the world and specifically in, in Europe and the Mediterranean, and the Romans got rid of it. Even the Greeks had, while they didn't practice child sacrifice, the Greeks had a sort of callousness uh, in some parts of Greek culture towards young children. The Romans got rid of that. And, and so what my point is that we could say, oh, look at us, we're standing in judgment against them. How could they do this? And they could say, hey, right back at you. What are you doing ending the life of unborn children? Philemon receives our judgment. Could we take his? Philemon, for all his flaws, was also incredibly generous. Philemon, for all his flaws, was apparently incredibly active in, in church life. 30% of Americans who were church-going in 2019 stopped going to church altogether. That includes watching online services or listening to Bible teaching podcasts like this one. So we can stand in judgment on Philemon, but he might turn back and say, you know what, I'm not perfect, and the Lord knows I need to grow, but what about you guys? What are you doing? To me, like I said earlier, and this is the words from, from a friend of mine who's, who's a black man who's experienced racism. Uh, he told me a story I hadn't heard from him before, but he was telling me how when he was in college, uh, he was at a... Uh, because of where his college was, he was going to a church that was predominantly white and he started dating a girl in the college group. And all of a sudden, people that had loved him before really started frowning on that. And the pastor's wife, shame on her, the pastor's wife pulled him aside and told him that he couldn't date this girl because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked and a, and a black man and a white woman should not be dating. Horrible racism that he endured in the church. It's shameful and for which any Christian who has committed that kind of racism should repent. But when we bring all of our stuff into this, we miss the key points. What's the, again, remember I said, when in doubt, zoom out. What is the main thing? The main thing isn't about the big institution of slavery. The, the main thing is about somebody being fully free. And what is it that the key verses of this book are verse 18, where Paul says, if he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. And in this way, Paul is being a picture of Jesus. If he's done anything wrong to you, charge it to me. That's why I said last week, if you have been a victim of abuse or, or spiritual abuse or emotional abuse or a toxic leader or a toxic church, and you just need to yell at a pastor and say, you don't get to say anything. I'm just going to yell at you. I'm willing to do it. Why? Because I did it? No. But because I know that, that there are times where we have to take kind of collective ownership. And Paul is being like Jesus here. What did I do that Jesus deserved the death on the cross. Jesus deserved nothing, but I had done everything wrong. Jesus said any crime that Adam committed, put it on me and I will take it. Jesus said any crime that you have committed, any wrong that you have done, any wickedness that has been in your heart or your actions, 
put it on my shoulders and I will take the blame. To me, that's the key verse is that Paul is saying, has he wronged you? Put it to my account. And then he says in verse 16, I'm sending him back to you, not as a slave, not as a slave. Jesus takes our charge, our crimes, and he says, put it on me. And then he sends us in this new life, no longer a slave, fully free. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. And we live in that freedom that comes from Jesus. We are no longer slaves to our old bitterness. We are no longer slaves to our old selfishness. We are no longer slaves to the dysfunction that we grew up in. We are no longer slaves to the lusts of our, of our sinful desires. We are free. Does that mean that we don't come in with baggage? No, of course not. I mean, Onesimus becomes a Christian and he still has all this baggage. He's not fully free. But Paul wants to see him fully freed just as Jesus wants to see you and me fully freed. And then, this might surprise you. Usually, if you read the New Testament, the first few verses of any letter in the New Testament are usually ones you skip over. Hey, it's me, Peter, Paul, James, John, whoever. I'm writing this letter to you. Good to see you. Now let's get to the stuff we're going to talk about. But I really believe that verses 1 and 2 are, the, are some of the key verses of this book. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to who? To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Verse 2, also to Appia, our sister in Christ, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. It's not just Philemon that Paul is writing this to. It's to his wife. Now, is Archippus his son? Or is he the pastor of the church in Colossae? Or is he both? Either way, I don't think it matters. The idea is that he wants not just Philemon to receive Onesimus back, fully restored, fully free, no longer a slave, but he wants the whole family to receive him, and he wants the whole church to receive him. I heard the story of a man who had sinned greatly and wounded many people in the church, and to the point where the church said, you can't be here until you repent. And after several months, the man repented and he came and he stood in front of the whole church. And, and I don't believe in, in making people stand up in front of the whole church to confess, you know, every little sin they've ever done. I've heard horror stories about that. But this man's sin had been public and it had been against the church. And so he was brought forward before the whole church and he said, this is what I did. And I know I hurt many people with my words and my actions. And I publicly confess it and I publicly repent of it. And then the pastor got up and he said, this man is your brother. You got to receive him back. And we're no longer going to hold this against him. And for the next 20 years, that man was a vital part of his church and, and lived and loved in the community. And if you came in new, you'd have no idea because it wasn't spoken of. It, was, it wasn't something that was to be um, even, even remembered. And I only heard about it just in, in a, like, 
wait, what did you mean by that? And the guy forgot that I hadn't been there at that time. And so I had to, I kind of got the backstory. And it wasn't one of those things like, oh, you know, he did something that was endangering people and we just swept it under the rug. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was something where the church said, you know what? You're not endangering anyone. We forgive you and we bring you fully in. To me, the main point of this is that all have sinned. And if I only welcome in people that have sinned and repented of things that I'm okay with forgiving, then the list of people who get to be part of the church is short. But if I say all of us have sinned and all who repent are welcomed, then the gates are wide open for anyone who wants to come in. It shouldn't be that only some people of some kind of sins and they come and they say, I used to do this and I repented and we say, hey, you're welcomed here. And then somebody else gets up and says, I used to do this and I was like that and now I, I want to follow Jesus. And we say, all have sinned and I'm not better than anyone else and you're not better than anyone else. And I could sit here and read this and and I'm not saying that I still don't have questions or struggles or there are things when it comes to how especially Paul deals with slavery that don't trouble me. I'm, I'm just being honest about that. But I could sit here and stand in judgment or I could sit here and say, you know what? Philemon experienced Jesus and he wasn't perfect, but neither am I. And maybe this was a moment where God was changing his heart towards the institution of slavery and we just don't have the full ending story. God's still working in my life. He's still working in yours. And instead of living in judgment on someone else, I want to take the main point, which is to see Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, which is to see Jesus Christ as the one who empowers us to live in freedom in this life and to see as a church family welcoming in those who Jesus brings. That to me is the main point. Is it an easy application to get to? No, but I believe if you do the work, you'll get there and it's worth it. I really wrestled with this passage this week preparing for this sermon. And I'm glad that I wrestled. I'm glad that I wrestled. I'd encourage you to keep wrestling with God because it's worth it. Let's take some time and respond in worship. We're going to take communion together. We're going to identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus because all of us come equally before God in this moment. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord gathered around a table with his closest followers and he had the meal with them. It was a Passover meal. Uh, we remember it as the Last Supper the last meal that Jesus had before going to the cross. At, during that meal, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he passed it around and each person broke a piece off. And he said, eat this. This is my body broken for you. And every culture has their own version of bread. So they just hear he took a piece of bread and they make it, you know, however they do bread. But what he would have done is he would have taken a piece of unleavened bread representing that there was no sin in him. He went to the cross blameless, the perfect sacrifice for us. So he broke that bread and he took it and he passed it around and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And at the end of the meal, he took a cup of wine and he passed it around and they each drank and he said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. And so these elements of communion 
are a way that Jesus has given us to remember his death. And not just to remember it, but to proclaim it. We publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. So I have here this piece of flatbread, remembering that Jesus, his body was broken for us. That he was beaten. He was spat upon. He was deprived of sleep, probably dehydrated. He was so weak that he couldn't carry his own cross and someone else had to carry it for him. And so I take this bread and I invite you to take your bread and eat and remember and proclaim. And then the cup, which signified his blood that was shed as a crown of thorns was driven into his head and blood would have flown down his face as he was whipped and his back was torn open as nails were driven through his wrists and his feet, and he was hung on that cross. And then as he died, a spear was plunged into his side. And it says that blood and water poured out, which signified that he was dead. And medically, we know that that happens when the heart literally breaks. And so we remember Jesus's blood shed for us. Father, we thank you that you made a way for salvation for all people. Jesus, the Son, we praise you because you submitted to the will of the Father and went willingly to that cross. And we invite the Holy Spirit to do the work in our lives to bind us to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Our sins are forgiven. Our lives are transformed. There is power. Life-changing power in what Jesus did. Praise you. Thank you. Worship you, Lord. Amen. If you've been with us this morning and you feel the weight, the guilt of your sin, know that there is forgiveness mercy, healing, and new life because of what Jesus did and who Jesus is and what Jesus is still doing in the lives of people. If this morning you know you're saved, but you need healing, you need mercy, you need power in any way, know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, is still working in the lives of Christians today. And all you have to do is ask, God, fill me with your spirit, empower me, to live for you. If you have questions about the Christian faith or anything we've talked about this morning, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We'd love to connect with you. We'll see you next Sunday, online or in person. And we'll be gathering together soon again in small groups so you can email for questions or how to get connected in that. God bless you. We'll see you next week.